0: Boston is about 3 degrees to the east of Washington, D.C., and so it would be about 12 minutes fast. And if you were in Pittsburgh, what would the time be? It would be about 6 minutes before 8 o'clock. And uh, that all works really – that probably doesn't make any difference if you're just going to stay in Pittsburgh or you're going to stay in Boston or you're going to stay in D.C. The problem comes when you try to synchronize uh, trains that are running in opposite directions on tracks. And uh, if you don't have the time synchronized well – the, the experience can be catastrophic, particularly for the inhabitants on those trains. And so there were some train wrecks. And uh, so um, they decided, okay, here's the thing we got to do. We're going to synchronize. We're going to basically establish standard times by railroad. Now, this is interesting. This is like corporate America establishing uh, standard times. That's scary. that would be scary today as it was then. And so what you had was that uh, the B&R rail would think that it was – they would set their clock and they'd say, it's 10 till 8. Right, And then you would have the pen, And the pen Central would say it was just a few minutes before 8. And then ultimately you would have an, a, another, say the, the area rail, and they would say it was 5 till 8. Well, that worked okay because at least they had standard time so they could work with those schedules a little bit better, not so many wrecks. But can you imagine this actually happened in the mid-1800s? You could walk into the station in Pittsburgh, and there were six different clocks, literally six different times, there were six different times. And so you were trying to go from your train that was on the BNR rail, and you thought you had plenty of time, but unfortunately you had to transfer to the Penn Central, which was just a few minutes ahead. And if you timed yourself off the BNR rail, you would miss the Penn Central train. A lot of confusion, a lot of grief, and a lot of chaos caused by not knowing what time zone you were really in. They're having multiple time zones and not really understanding their relationship with each other. And so what um, there was society had been floating around for a long time, and uh, people finally came together around it. And this idea was to establish time zones longitudinally. Do not try to say longitudinally really fast three times. I'm not sure it can really be done. And uh, I tried, and it hurt. So they, would, they set the time zones longitudinally, more or less, in a, you know, dividing the, the globe up into 24 separate time zones. And this had a great advantage because cities that were in the same region shared the same time zone. And so that way, it was really easy. If you were on a train from Charleston to New York or to Boston, it was in the same time zone. And this made synchronizing schedules for passengers and schedules for using the rails very easy. And so knowing what time zone you're in made this much, much easier. And that's how we ended up with time zones. So there's really nothing, uh, nothing miraculous in time zones except that they, they need to be standardized. Now, when it comes to the future, having hope for the future of mankind... We suffer with the same kind of confusion, and so what I'm going to say is this: is as I, as I go into this more a little bit further. But you're going to hear me. You're going to think I'm answering this question: Is there hope for the future of mankind? Three different ways, and I'm going to answer it three different ways. And what I'm going to say is that the way you find hope is different in every time zone, and it's important to know what time zone you're talking about when you are trying to find hope. So why? I've used the word "know" a lot, and it's worth it's it's worth noting this relationship between hope and knowledge or knowing, because in a real way, we think that hope is sort of out there, a sort of intuitive experience. In some ways, in some elements, it is, but in some ways, hope is very concrete because this biblical in the biblical essence of the word, hope can be reasonably translated as meaning confident expectation or expecting with confidence. And the problem with time zones and not knowing where you are at is that the less knowledge you have, the more uncertainty you have, the less hope you're going to have. It's a very important relationship between knowing and hope and intuition and hope. They both actually come together. So let's take a look at a text. Um, it's, a, uh, it's from Ephesians. Paul, the Apostle Paul a leader of the church, early church, wrote this as a letter to the church in Ephesus, and in this uh, book, he he he's really uh, really ebullient. I would say he's just really excited, and he has sort of three prayers in here, and they're all almost ecstatic. They have so much excitement in them. Now that's interesting because Paul is really a great intellectual person. I mean, if you read his he was, a, he was a trained lawyer. He apparently spoke a lot of different languages. He could, uh, he could go into any city and adapt pretty quickly and contextualize his message for that culture. Very sharp wit. But these prayers, these three prayers, all show this sort of intuitive or this emotional side of him. And that we're going to look at the second half of the first prayer, which is in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And he's going to talk about these three time zones. You're going to pick them up pretty easily. It goes like this. and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills... Everything in every way. And so the three time zones are pretty straight up. You could have guessed them. They are past, they are now, and they are future. We're going to take them in a little bit different order. We're going to start with your past. And in this time zone, what you need is that you have a hope of calling. Interesting thing about all the responses we had about hope, although they were all true in some way, this element did not show up in any of the responses we got. And so that is a sign, potentially, I think, of how great our hopelessness can be as people because you need to know the hope of your calling. Um, I, I, what I would tell you is this. There's this, there's this idea we have that, or that we hold out in general, which is that we're sort of like babies or infants and that we cry out to God and that he responds to us. And, and that works in some way, that that's the first call that we call out to God. But, but what Scripture would argue is that God calls us first. That, in fact, he puts the desire for us to call out to him inside our hearts. And that he then himself calls to us, and we either answer or we don't answer. Now, there is a generic way in which we can answer, and then there's, there's, and there's a generic calling, and there is a, a personal calling. And I want to break those down because y- y- the hope you your calling breaks down in those two ways. Generically or universally and, and personally. Universally. God was designed that none would perish and that all would be saved. And so God has called to all of us to respond to his amazing love and to follow after him. And he's invited us to do that specifically by following the person of Jesus who said to his disciples and everybody who's come after him, he said, follow me. And if our response is yes, then we receive that, we respond to his first call and we received the peace of Christ what Christ did was in his life was that he was reconciling people who were far from God to the Father himself. He was bringing peace where there had been enmity and strife and division and he was closing that gap. And so in a real way, when we hear God's call and we respond to it in that universal sense, we rece- we, we become we we reside in Christ and he in us. We receive liberty, we receive freedom. We receive the opportunity to serve people, not because we have to, but because we want to, to serve people freely. We increase in, we can increase in goodness in joy, increase in patience in the midst of our suffering. We increase in the maturity of Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like Christ. And, and that's obviously a really attractive thing. Who wouldn't want to be more like Christ? I mean, That's, that's the, the large universal calling that God has put out there. And that sort of life is available to everybody freely, Anybody who wants to respond to that call and say, yes, I will follow. I want to follow you. That's the life that I want to have. That's the the universal call that's available to everybody. That is the most important call that we can respond to in our lives. But there's another call that comes right behind that that we don't often get. In fact, I find very rarely do we modern people, do moderns, hear this. But it's almost as important as the first. And that's a personal call in your life to become the person that God has called you to be, to do the work that He's asked you to do, to do the things that He, he designed you for from the very beginning, the things that He ordained for you, the things that when He, he imagined you, that He imagined you doing. The, there's a verse later on in Ephesians where, where Paul says this, he says, "'For you are God's workmanship.'" created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. And the idea there of the word workmanship is really masterpiece. So imagine, if you will, this is, this is God, the creator, the greatest master of all. And he's going to paint his greatest work, his masterpiece, the thing that when anybody comes and they think of God, this is the thing that they will remember him for. So it's the blue period for Picasso, right? It's, you know, it, it, this is, this is going to be you. You're going to be nude descending on a staircase or something. It's going to be great. This is, this is what they're going to think of God when, they, when they, they see you. And the master takes great joy in that masterpiece. God made you to be a masterpiece, if, you were, if, he, if he were a pastry chef, you would be the most delectable, most wonderful chocolate thing of goodness that he ever created. And you would inspire song in anybody that came about you because you would be so chocolatey good. It's a God's masterpiece. And this is just hard for us to believe because we live with ourselves every day. But this is who you are, this is your calling. And you've got to hear this you've got to hear that you are called personally as a masterpiece of God you go to a party and what do people ask you you meet somebody new where they ask you what do you do for a living and maybe they're just trying or where they ask maybe in Charlotte they'll say what neighborhood do you live in you give them a couple clues they can probably guess the amount of money you have in the bank where you know, how much how much money you make but they can also we ask them those questions because we're kind of wondering how it is that we can know who the person is we're talking to even a little bit deeper. And asking where we work or where somebody lives seems a little bit more safer than saying, you know, what kind of masterpiece are you? I've I've never tried that, but probably some of you have. Um, So when people say to me, you know, what do you do for a living? I say, well, you know, I hawk tile for a living. I sell tile for a living. But I, I think I have a lot higher calling than that. I won't say what it is right now, but I think I have a lot higher calling than that. When, when people say to you, what do you do? Are you are you prone to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a mom. I'm, I'm raising kids. Or I'm an accounts receivable clerk. Or, uh, uh, you know, I'm a banker. Well, you're not a mom. Not really. That's not your calling. I mean, of course, you're a mom, but that's not your calling. That's, that's what you're doing, but that's not your calling. Your kids will grow up one day. They won't need you to, 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 to yell at them anymore. They need that now. but They desperately need that now. Um, no, no. Your calling, your calling, it's clear And this time, if, if you're a mother, your calling is that you are raising children in the nurture of God himself so that they can hear his voice when the time comes. You are raising somebody who may be maybe most closely aligned right now as your children. But in 1,000 years, they will their real identity will be as your brother or your sister and not your children. That's what your calling is in that moment. Our view of our calling, our, our lives is too low, much too low. Your calling is you are going to help those children. You're going to help them to grow attentive ears so that they will hear God calling in them themselves. You're not an account receivable clerk. Maybe you're the one person in your cube area, your your cube tribal area, that's really a friend that doesn't gossip. Is open for business to hear all the time. And so, yeah, you're a council civil clerk, but you're the person that everybody goes to when they need to be built up, when they need to be encouraged, when they need an attentive ear. That's your calling. You're not a banker. Of course you're a banker, but that's not your calling. I mean, maybe you're the one person that's saying, I don't know if that's such a good idea maybe the person that stands with, for ethics and and is passionate and in a real way is bringing truth and, and light into maybe an area of the world that, that could use that. Maybe you're going to bring greater wisdom than just what a column of numbers is going to show there. Your call is something much greater than you imagine. and it's, And Paul calls it as I said, this hope of our calling. And so that's the first thing. If you're in the past, if you're in the time zone that is past, you think about the past, you need to know your calling. The second one is this I'm going to go, I'm going to fast forward to the future. And there, the hope there is the hope of our inheritance. Now, there's a lot of ambivalence when we talk about the future or the end of things or the end of the world or eschatology or all these things. But really, what you want to take away from all those things is is that you have an inheritance, okay? And and this is kind of fuzzy, so it's best to not be really dogmatic because if I say it's going to be specifically like this and this and this and this, what I can imagine is that in 50 years, somebody else will say something completely different. And so it, 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 I'm not going to say necessarily streets paved with gold and, you know, all that. What I would tell you is that what you need to pay attention to is that when the Bible talks about the future, it says things like, we will be with God, and he will be with us. We will; He will be our God, and we will be his people. The essence of that time is God with us. And apparently there's something amazing about that, because in his presence, we will be perfectly transformed. Paul says elsewhere that, you know, in, when we see him, we will be like him. Wow, Really? We'll be like Christ. It doesn't mean that you'll stop being you. It doesn't mean you'll stop being Fred, or you'll stop being Bill, or you'll stop being you. You'll still be you. You'll still have your full personality. But you will be you fully. And you'll be without blemish. And you'll be without Mark. And you'll be without your pain. And you will be like Christ. You will be fully you. And that transformation will happen simply in seeing Him you'll be fully you in body and in character, perfect with him in fellowship and praise. Now, that is really amazing. But I'll hold this out for you. We, we don't know ourselves very well or don't know ourselves as well as we could. And so we need somebody to call us into that future. And when we get to that future, to receive this inheritance. There's a, um, <clears throat> there's a scripture in Revelation here at the end that says that when, uh, when John had this vision, the angel gave, of the, the when John Apostle John had this vision and it's in the book of Revelation, okay? And when he tells that story, what he says is that an angel came and he gave him a stone, a white stone, on which was written his name and nobody knew that name but God himself. And you have a name. And you don't even know it. But God does. And in that moment that he gives you that stone, you will be transformed. That is your future. Paul spends a lot more time talking, going back and talking about now. We live in this time which is in between now and not yet. We're not fully in the past, although we're reminded of who, we're, who we are by our calling, and we don't live fully in, our, in, the, in the future in our inheritance But we live right now. We live in this period of now. And he says that in this time zone, the thing that you want to pay attention to or the thing that you really want to grab onto is the hope of power or the hope of empowerment. God actually coming and living inside of us. Now, this is interesting. When Paul makes this argument here, um, I tend to argue most things intuitively, but when he makes this argument here, he makes an objective legal argument. Because in that day there were people that were witnesses that had seen the had seen Jesus both alive and dead and resurrected all three they had seen him in all states and so he felt comfortable making an argument that he could take to court and have it hold up that that was in fact the reality of Christ that was who was if you want to melt the gospel down to the most critical element it's this Jesus lived he died and he was resurrected in power this is so important this idea of power. Because Paul says this, he says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And what he's saying is this, that in the same way that Christ received power and was resurrected from the grave, when you die, you can be as empowered as well. And if you receive that, you, if, if you do that, you will also receive power in this moment. And it is the same power now as it was in Christ and it's the same power that he will have when he sits on the throne. So he makes this argument with knowledge. He makes it objectively. Two things you need to know in application of the now. That I think we can really see, and this is going to get kind of meaty here, but I think you can start to see how we derail our lives of hope in this now period looking at power. Here's how here's how this is going to go. Two elements in this argument. The first is that this power is real and that it's available, right? The second, and that it's, so that it's, it's unique in both its display and its effectiveness. The second is this, that that power is really only available in the person of Christ. And that's why he says things like, you know, Christ in you is the hope of glory. You can look at every other great teacher through every other century, great teaching, great moral teaching— there's only kind of one cra- either crazy man or Messiah who stand up saying, "I lived, I died, and I was ro- and I rose again in power." And so that power, that source of power, is is Christians would argue is really only available in its fullness from the person from being in a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. I know that that is probably offensive, but I'm that is that's the argument that Paul is making. So that's it, power which is effective and unique, and power that's available in Christ. So here's where we get derailed. The despondent person looks at the situation around them and thinks, you know, I don't have any power to change things. I'm just going to sit here and be depressed. And the proud person looks at the future and thinks they own it. Because they think, I've been pretty successful to this point. I can make it through. I'll be okay in the future. And they're both without hope. They're both without expanding confidence. The first because their position denies the real available power that God has to give. That's if you're despondent. And the person that's successful and proud is hopeless as well because they deny the, the source of the hope, which is God himself, and specifically the person of Christ. Now, you may not be all, you're probably not all despondent. If you were, um, you wouldn't have any friends at all. You'd probably be still, be, still be in bed this morning. And you not you might, may not be completely proud. Most of us are schizophrenic. We're walking around With some degree of these elements going on in our lives in various and different places. And so the opportunity here is in your schizophrenia to speak to your schizophrenia and ask, Why am I feeling powerless? Or when you're feeling too strong, you're asked the question, Why do I think I can do this apart from the power of Christ? People want hope. Because we're too because we're just so hopeless. We lack calling. We don't know how things are gonna end. And we feel powerless in the face of addiction and trouble. So what is it that should give us hope in the future of mankind? Knowing what time zone we're in. Understanding the hope of our calling. Understanding the hope of our inheritance. And living and walking in in our hope and our power the hope of power right now. But there's something getting in the way of that. And And I think that this is worth putting out. This is kind of getting to the crunchy stage here. But something's getting in the way of that. And, and Paul attacks that at the very beginning of the prayer, this prayer. And what he says is, you're really not experiencing those things, so I'm going to pray something for you. I'm going to pray that you would have your eyes opened and your hearts opened, and you'd be able to see and you'd be able to hear, and that you'll know. Paul does this crazy thing all through Ephesians where he marries knowledge and faith, and we have divorced them. We've divorced them. And we, for some reason, we thought just because the Constitution s- said that there was a segregation of powers and that you were free to worship in any place you wanted, we thought that that meant that we couldn't be people that were able to walk both in, in, in wisdom, or with, with thought, and walk with with uh, with enlightenment. But we can, and we should, and he's encouraging us to do that. So, enlightenment by by the Spirit, of course. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. He tells us, you know... That tells us that you know prayer brings down strongholds. He encourages us to embrace this part of the part of life which is intuitive and 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 out there a little bit, and it's internal. But he tells us you know that you know walk in the spirit. At the same time, he says you know think, think. He we're even encouraged to do this. You know, pray that you'll have the mind of Christ. You know, so when you're looking at a column of numbers at work pray. You know, and when you're praying, your kids will relent. Think. Bring the two things together. Bring them together. John Stott said this. He said, knowledge is the ladder by which faith climbs higher, the springboard from which it leaps further. When when we divorce those two, we leave experience as an orphan. And I'm going to show you how that works here by asking this question. What does a life full of hope look like? Well, it's a marriage of knowledge and faith an experience is their child. This is hopeful. You want to get you want to get hope. You need to start asking for it. If you're just starting on this journey, I'm going to give it, I'm going to break this into two pieces. First is, what if I but if you're a person who thinks you're fairly hopeless or you're just getting started on this journey, and then the last question is going to be how will I know when I arrive? So the first question is this, I'm a neophyte. I'm just getting started. What should I expect? The first thing you should expect is to go back to this calling, this idea, this notion of calling. If you have not heard Christ calling to you, the first opportunity is to respond to him and say, I will follow. I will follow. Secondly, if you've said that, follow with the next question is, where am I following you to? <laughs> where are we going? <laughs> Who am I? This is just so important because challenges will almost come at this level of calling at the very beginning. You'll think you heard a calling, and what will you think? You'll think, Two days later you'll wake up and you'll think, I'm crazy. I didn't hear anything. That was just me making that stuff up. So this attack almost always comes at the level of your calling at the very beginning. And more than that, even if you've accepted that call, what will happen if you're at the beginning is you'll try to be deterred from it. So if you accept your call and you think you hear something about yourself, about who you are, what you're called to be, more than likely something will come into that path that's going to challenge it. And you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to stand up to it. I was um, <clears throat> running yesterday out at uh, Crowders. Uh, at uh, Crowders, actually, a uh, little uh, segue here. There's a great trail that goes kind of along Signal uh, Peak all the way down to South Carolina, and there's nobody on that end of the trail. But if you're up on the up by the park, it's really crowded. So I was coming back at the finish of that run. It was getting dark, and um, coming down the hill, tired, lots of rocks, and uh, there was a couple I saw. I passed them in front of me. They were walking along, and uh, they had bad footwear. Always a bad sign on that trail. And um, uh, you want to be sure footed. Um, I know something about that, having uh, recently broken my nose um, on a run. And, um, and so, uh, so I'm going down the trail, and I, this is stupid. <laughs> um, I was actually talking on the phone while I was running. running. <laughs> so Kathy was at work, and, and I didn't want to miss her call, and blah. So lucky I wasn't the one that fell. So as I passed him and got about 50 feet past him, um, I heard this. I heard the sound of the stubbed toe on the stump, which was hidden by the leaves. Uh, then I heard a long period of silence followed by the sound of someone speeding as they're tilted over, trying to gain their, their, uh, their balance back, which is usually followed by this sound, which is kind of the hit and the double bounce, unless they have the fortune of this sound, which is the tree. That's that's always bad. So it was the first. I told Kathy goodbye because I'm such a great guy, and um, I hung up. And as I turned around, I saw the guy on the ground, screaming in psychological pain. Um, I went back, and uh, you know, you never know. Somebody's on the ground. It looks pretty painful. And it's like it, it, we're both his companion. and I were both saying, "Are you? you know, is everything okay? Are you right?" And it's like you know, oh, he's kind of holding his knee, and the, only the first thing that comes out of his mouth is this. A spaz like me doesn't belong on this trail. <laughs> that says something. And I told him, look, no, really, you know, I fell myself just three weeks ago, broke my nose. This, is, this proves that you should be on the trail. I really thought in that moment, this guy's called to be on the trail. And somebody else is telling him that he shouldn't be. And he needs to lean against that. He needs to be on the trail. So when your calling comes, and even after you've heard it, likely other voices, both within and without, will tell you that you're on the wrong trail. So lean against that. So if you're in the beginning of this journey, my guess is that you need to hear about your calling, and you'll need to hold on to it. May and I'm going to give you just one question for this. If you don't know what your calling is, I just this white stone thing is really hot for me usually. Just take some time to just find that scripture in Revelation. It's the early part of Revelation. I can't remember where. And just pray and just say, what's my name? What's my name? And as God tells you your name, or what he thinks, when you hear that name, you'll know a lot more about your calling because your name will say something about where you're going. Okay, so when you start also, another thing is likely you will start in your strength, but God will deliver you into your weakness, and you will have ample opportunities then. So if you're a person that's really strong on knowledge, likely you're going to end up over getting to uh, work on your spiritual side and vice versa. How will you know when you get there? Well, your experience will change. You will function better in both areas, for one thing, both of these things, and you'll bring them together. John Scott says this, he says, It is precisely as we ponder what God has done in Christ. The Spirit will open our eyes to grasp its implications. So the sign of a person that's brought these things together, the person that's living hopefully, is you're sitting here in, the, in worship, right? And while you're worshiping, expressing, worship, and singing of all things, you will, God, the Spirit, will be able to bring things to your mind and they will have implications for the hard things in your life. Like, should I still be yelling at my kids every day? And another way you'll know you're, you're, you're starting to arrive is this. Maybe you're a person who said, you know, I'm my father's child. So, you, you know, I'm just, I'm just a product of my kids, or a product of my parents. And you're calling trumps your DNA. You're calling trumps your DNA both spiritually and physically. Um, if you were arrogant before and you thought you could do anything you wished, um, you will be smart enough to know that the accumulated scars in your life tell you that you really need Christ. And if you're a despondent person, over time, what you'll realize is you'll you'll laugh at the future, because you'll realize that it never really depended on you anyway. Because you had this full power of Christ anyway, and you were being called to something so great. You won't be in denial of the things that are the giants that are before you, but I'm not certain that you'll give them much count anyway. Um, People with hope look at the past and they call it redeemed. They look at the end and they call it expectation, and they look at the now and they call it opportunity. Hope for mankind is found in God's calling, inheritance, and power. Not so much in your children. It is freely offered to anyone that will stop following their own voice, lay down their own work, and fixing their own vessels. So this life you want that you're living right now, that's in this way. This life you're living right now. This is one thing that I understand in these time zones. We live like this next time zone. This not yet period. This end time is a long ways away. Um, I'm getting old enough to see people that are dying and people that are getting Alzheimer's and all this stuff is happening. And what I'm realizing is that the next thing is not so far away. It's about right here. This now is not a dress rehearsal for the next world. This is your life. This is really life now. You can live it to the full and you can live it with hope. We say here that, you know, we really want to be a church that... um, prospers, and that when we prosper, our neighbors will be glad. There is so little hope in most people's lives, and it is so transferable. This is something that we can really excel at. We may not have the most money. We may not have the best programs. We absolutely can excel at giving hope away, but we've got to get that hope for ourselves first. Know your calling. Know your inheritance. Get the power. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, being able to come here and to uh, be encouraged. Thank you that um, you've called us so surely. Help us to hear that. Thank you uh, for the inheritance that you're preparing. We look forward to the day that when we see you will be perfectly transformed in an instant. And thank you for the power that you offer to us now to live uh, radically different than we have. In your son's name we pray, amen.